This episode of Our Gen Pod is brought to you by a grant from Family Nation and by listeners like you. Thank you. I'm Julian G. Simmons, and this is Our Gen Pod. Hi, everyone, and to those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome. When we started our GenPod, our description was by, for, and about baby boomers. We wanted to create a podcast specifically about the 55-plus audience like us. And although it is important to talk about issues and interests from our perspective, the more we got into looking into those generational divisions, baby boomers versus millennials versus Gen Xers, the more we realized that these divisions don't really help anyone and actually hurt all of us. We are facing some serious problems, global climate change, deepening divisions between the political right and the left, a dangerous threat to democracy, a growing gap in wealth, and the emphasis is on the we. We are all in this together. We need to work together and stop pointing fingers at who's to blame. So that's the direction we're taking. We're looking for solutions to our common problems, ways to get along while still coming at it from the perspective of the older generation. Because after all, we have been overlooked and underserved and ignored, but our goal is to find positive answers to the negative threats that we're all facing together. Today, we're specifically taking a hard look at how we've been divided up into those warring camps like baby boomers versus millennials. Our guest is Professor Bobby Duffy, the director of the Policy Institute at King's College London, whose most recent book, The Generation Myth, knocks down those walls with solid research and has come to some bold conclusions. So here's my conversation with Professor Bobby Duffy. Hi, Bobby. Hi. Welcome to our Gem Pod. Mm. For our listeners, I'm going to just tell people who you are, and you are the Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Policy Institute at King's College London, correct? That's correct. And you've worked in many areas of public policy for over 30 years, including the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. What is the strategy unit for our American listeners? It's uh, so the strategy unit looked at big picture issues for government, I'm trying to look further ahead, I guess, not just at the immediate business of government. What I actually looked at was uh, understanding life satisfaction and trust in other people and how that related to what government was doing. Tell us how you ended up in this profession. I mean, what was it that was so fascinating to you about some of it? People would roll their eyes going, oh, my God, all the all the statistics and the <laughs> numbers. And well, how do I make sense of that? And how do I make it interesting? Yeah, I suppose I've always been interested in evidence and uh, how particularly on how society works, and then even more particularly on how people think and their attitudes and values and identity and how that relates to their behavior. So I've kind of always had an interest in that. In terms of my study, it was quite mixed. It was quite a focus on 
literature and storytelling alongside more data driven and methodologically and statistically driven areas of study. So I've always I've always liked the interplay between those two things of how do you understand the world and the mix of evidence and stories that people use to understand themselves and the world. Um, so, but the reason we have you on uh, the the podcast today is because you've recently written a book called The Generation Myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you tell us what that title means exactly? I mean, what what is it you're trying to say with that? Yeah, I suppose if you're trying to sum up the book in a sentence, it would be that generational thinking is a really big idea that some of the biggest thinkers in philosophy and sociology think is really important to understand society. But that idea has been horribly corrupted by a whole series of stereotypes, myths, and cliches about different generations. So the myth, there's, no, there's not one myth, it's a whole series. It's like a never-ending stream of myths and stereotypes about different generations, which um, cloud the real changes that are true between generations. There are differences between generations. Generational change is one of the key ways in which societies move forward. Um, but that's kind of lost in this mess of um, myths and uh, cliches. So that's why that's the job of the book is trying to separate the myth from the reality by not just proving or disproving something that's generational, but trying to understand the real root cause of the change that we're seeing. Um, which why, why do you think the the myths are? Why do they persist? Uh, yeah, there's many many reasons. I think that fundamentally, humans like to tell stories about ourselves and um, these uh, these uh, labels become very useful shorthands that simplify a very complex world um, about who we are, which group we are in, and who we're not, who the other group are. So I think the there is a sort of natural appeal to us of um, these types of simplifications. But then there's so also... So is, is it good? Is it a good thing? Well, I mean, no, I think there's there's a definite downsides to it. So there's big, partly because there's also a second effect, which is other people... Some people are motivated to exaggerate differences or change between generations because there's money to be made or there are clicks to be got on um, uh, extreme stories uh, in social media or the media. So you, you have got people who are motivated to accentuate the differences between generations. And that's, that's why we've seen such a huge number of myths of cliches around millennials killing lots of traditions that people like or um, ridiculous things like millennials killing the wine cork industry or all of those types of things. Or, and then at the other end of the age spectrum, baby boomers ruining things, ruining the planet, ruining everything, really. Um, so you've got, I think that sort of uh, stereotyping is destructive and, and dangerous about how we see each other, connections that we have between us are put at threat by that stereotypical view of um, other generations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, you know, our so right now we're doing a series mm-hmm. of episodes on civility or the lack thereof. And um, just 
to help people understand more what what it means to be civil in society and why it's so important. So, uh, uh, how does that relate to the generation myth? Would you say uh, civility in, in, intergenerationally is it a is it a problem? Yeah, I do think it is. I think anything where you've got this weight of stories that are uh, caricaturing generations as um, uh, a partic- doing a particular action, which is like the killing uh, theme, or that they are utterly different from each other. So this accentuation of um, around things around culture wars of this is a, a generation of snowflakes who are or social justice warriors who have very different views from people who've come before, that creates a sense of distance and conflict between generations uh, on this. Is it, so we, uh, we may not fully believe them, but it does affect our um, view because there are so many of them. And I think that's combined with a second really important trend, which has been a real age segregation over recent decades in a number of countries. So we have uh, in countries like the US and the UK, older people have increasingly been uh, living in suburban and rural, more rural areas, and young people have been sorted into cities to a degree that we've not seen before. Um, so there's a lot of talk in the US about this being a, a dangerous experiment in age segregation. Um, I know you've also said with social media, for example, the way baby boomers, Gen Xers use social media, which is not nearly as much as what a a Gen Z would or Mm. any of the younger groups, that also perpetuates this division, Mm. doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. So you've got this physical separation into different spaces that is very much mirrored in a digital separation where... People are on different platforms doing different things between the different generations. And uh, and because our digital lives have become more important in our lives overall, that digital separation is also important. I mean, there's a, there is one of a, a very strong set of evidence around contact theory in sociology, which is that uh, good uh, contact between groups is very important for understanding um, and connection between them. The actual being in touch with people, seeing them individually, seeing them in real life situations, is really important to avoid that sense of distance um, between people. That there's a people that you can think you are very different from when you and have very opposing views to. While it's very easy to have that type of um, very aggressive, not very positive interactions with them online when people are actually in touch with each other and in a physical space, they're much more polite and measured and can see the other person's um, point of view. So we are losing contact in not just the real world, in the physical environment, we're losing um, positive contact in the digital world in more considered ways. And that's, that is a worry because it is... Uh, a very strong piece of evidence that um, when you lose that contact, you're much more likely to think less generously of the other side um, because you're, you're not, they're not as humanized to you. They are more abstract and 
you don't know people from that group and that is uh, across the generations that is a worry and i think explains quite a lot of the increasing sense of concern or or the worry about generational war um, or conflicts is we just don't come into contact with each other as much as we used to Right. I mean, it's interesting because, and I, I think maybe it's not just even intergenerational, because if you hear in the U.S., for example, over uh, the presidential election, mm. uh, the things that people would say to each other that I would see on, for example, Facebook, and in our own, we did a survey on civility, and we asked our listeners a lot of questions about what they thought were the issues. And 85% of our listeners who responded to the survey said civility is an issue. On Facebook, for example, the things that people would say to each other, and I would think, well, would you actually say that to someone if you were face-to-face -face with them? I mean, I suppose some people would. But the majority of us wouldn't. We wouldn't dare talk to someone like that in person. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's exactly it. It's much easier to dehumanize someone if you're not in their presence and, uh, and uh, don't see them as uh, a full person. And that's quite, that is um, much easier in this digital environment. So speaking of tribalism, for example, how we like to stick to our own groups, does that empower us, do you think, more in a negative way than a positive way? Oh, it's a really good question. I mean, I, there are definite positives to being part of a group and having a sense of identity. I think there's nothing, there's nothing immediately wrong with having that. I mean, it's really important to humans to feel you're a part of a group. We are social animals and... Um, that sense of connection to others is really important to us. I guess it's it's more where our identity is set up against other people's identities, and you've got an in-group versus out-group dynamic. And that sense of distance and polarization is the worry. So there's, there's lots of research around how increasingly polarized we are becoming. Where um, we have a worldview that is very different from the other group's worldview, and we think that that's the right one and they are wrong. Um, and you can see that in trends in the US. Uh, there's a Pew Research that they call the Moving Mountains chart, which just shows Republicans and Democrats drifting apart as two mm -hmm. mountains that became, that overlapped quite a bit in terms of their attitudes not that long ago, but now are utterly separate. Um, in terms of their uh, general social or political attitude. So, yes, I think um, being part of a group is, is not necessarily bad. It's just it's when it's set up not just for itself but against other people, um, and that's where it becomes more difficult. So is there a difference between, say, my perception as a baby boomer or my individual perception? Mm. I mean, where is there an overlap? Uh, are they different or are they the same? Does that make sense? Yeah, you mean your group identity and your individual identity? Is that what you mean? Yeah. A, yeah, I mean, look, the baby boomers are a huge cohort of people who have massive variation, obviously, in terms of circumstances, behaviors, attitudes within such a vast swathe of the population. So this is what I use in the book is this three-way split of what explains attitudes and values and behaviors and how they change, which is you know, one of them is a generational effect, a cohort effect. 
you will be more similar to baby boomers in some ways because you were brought up a similar type and we know that that formative experience is really important in how we're more malleable in those early adult years late teen and early adult years you will have some sense of cultural connection we kind of get that instinctively but you also have life cycle effects where you change as you age and people will be going on different life courses depending on their experience during their life so that kind of varies people's experience and they also have period effects where things happen generally and change the context for people so you end up with a very rich mix of these different effects explaining change and a lot of variation within generations. So things like economic outcomes, there's more variation in inequality within baby boomer generations than on average across generations because that's just the way it works. So you will have things in common, but you'll also have significant differences and we need to look at the whole picture, not just focus on one aspect. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think it's is especially true in the United States because we are such a mixture of ethnicities. And in the late 1800s into the 1900s, up until the war, we had this huge influx of immigrants. So when I was growing up in the 50s, I spoke Polish as a child because my family came from there. And so everything that surrounded me was very ethnic. The schools were Polish, everything. And this is in the United States. So you end up in this kind of little island within a big country. And I recognize it very clearly now in this country, for example, with the Latino population. We have this very large influx, especially in California, of Latino immigrants, and they live in close communities. And I'm sure that what you're saying plays a part in what our perception is of the society that we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to civility, I want to talk for a minute about what part the media has in portraying different groups in society. For example, I've noticed that older people are almost absent from television in this country, which kind of perpetuates that dissociation between generations. But I don't see it so much. I watch a lot of British television, and I don't see it so much there. It's much more integrated, would you say? Mm-hmm. And how how does that play out in society as a whole? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen the direct comparisons of US, UK, but the trend is, I think the reality is that it's the same. It's the same point that uh, older people are underrepresented in the UK media uh, outside of particular types of drama or um, uh, uh, particular types of shows. So, yes, there's very solid evidence that is, it, and, and things like advertising in particular, there's a dearth of older people. And when they, they do have older people in those types of media, it is quite often a cliched view of them. You've got those seven stereotypes right. of older people from the very fragile end up to the, the golden age image of, uh, but they all, nearly all of media coverage fits into these stereotypes, which is problematic. So it's not only underrepresented, it's also, they are more negative than positive. Yeah, because they're very negative for the most part. I mean, looking at that, I mean, curmudgeon, severely impaired, or, or John Wayne conservative. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, it's, it is a strange list, but it seems to fit to help. Uh, and it is, it's a sort of bit of a, I don't know, it's a bit of a paradox still that um, we're very aware that we've got an aging population. We're also aware that baby boomers on average have uh, significant wealth and consumer spending um, power, but still advertisers and commercial organizations generally do not have a very sophisticated offer or appeal to them. And uh, we've known that for decades and it hasn't changed very much. It's got a bit better, it has changed a bit, but it hasn't changed nearly as much as you'd expect. And that's that's interesting. We've still got that negative association with age um, that uh, when people are portraying a, a lifestyle uh, or a brand that they want you to connect to, they will naturally go to younger people um, rather than older people to get that point across. I understand what you're saying, Bobby, but there there is this other side to it, and that is there's been research done about how old people feel. Do they really feel their age or do they feel younger? And generally, people usually feel about 20 years younger yeah. than they actually are. So yeah, if that's the case, I'm sure that there's been a lot of psychological analysis done within advertising, like how do we target the audiences we want to reach? And maybe, I don't know this, but maybe that what they're doing is they're saying, let's make them young because people feel younger than they actually are. They never relate to their real age, most of the time at least. Ooh. And so when they see someone younger in an ad, it's more appealing to them than if they see someone older. Yeah, agree. As well as the mm -hmm. fact that usually when we see older people in ads, they're, they're handicapped or it's about retirement or it's about health insurance or life insurance or something like that or stock investments and it's generally all about being old as opposed to just being a human being yeah i'm sure that some of what we're dealing with with younger generations they're more impressionable they like ads is one of the things that i remember is that that they're impressed by ads it's where as opposed Ooh. as you get older you get kind of more critical of what you're watching and I, in fact, I don't like watching ads now at all, um, but I remember when I was younger, I thought it was kind of fascinating. I'm sure that some of what we're dealing with with younger generations is that they are still formulating who they're going to be, and a lot of that is a big experiment. Yeah. It's funny, because I remember when I was um, 14, there was this movie that came out called Wild in the Streets. It was about this guy who was running for senator. He wanted this band to help him promote to younger people. And then they decided, well, we want to change the voting age to 15. <laughs> and so the, the young people take over the country. And when I was watching it, I thought, oh, this is <laughs> so great. You know, <laughs> this is how I feel. It's like yeah. we should be running things because they don't do <laughs> anything. And uh, so I recognized yeah. myself in the book from way back then thinking, okay, I understand this. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. That is a, an age-based trend. That is an age-based ex explanation. Young people, quite rightly, always think that the old, older people have done it wrong and we need to come in and, and do it better. Uh, equally, older groups, it's a constant of history that older groups always think the new generation are the worst ever. Um, the new generation of young people are, are weird and wrong. And that's like really natural that is 
one of the things to kind of get your head round is that it's it's not just natural for society for there to be tension between young and old. It's actually essential for society to have some element of tension because older people get we get set in our ways once we get past our formative years to some degree, not entirely, but to some degree. And you need that new generation as an injection of um, some of the academics call it demographic metabolism, that we've got this sense we need that refreshment so that we don't uh, stagnate as society. So there is uh, something very healthy in having tension between generations because if we didn't have it, we've probably stopped evolving as a society and that's not a good thing. So based on that, is there an overlap between civility and the generation myth? Uh, how do you mean? If you, an overlap? Well, the thing that comes to mind for me, for example, is that when I was growing up, some of the things that I rebelled against was sort of the order of things. Mm. That you did things a certain way, especially when you were out in public yeah. or whatever. But as I got older, I realized the things that I was rebelling against were also the things that I relied upon to keep my life in order. Yeah. And a lot of that is, at least my perception of it, has been erased. The yeah. kind of order of things. And I think it was especially true even in, in the UK, whether it was a class structure or mm. things like that. But it hasn't been replaced with anything. It, there's chaos in, in the world. And I think part of that is that people are acting out because they don't have... I, I think most people are used to somebody's telling them what to do yeah. or how to be. And if they don't have that, they just kind of run amok. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'm... Sh okay, so I would say as us as people who are older should naturally feel unsettled by the change that young people are bringing through. If we didn't, like say... That would be that would show that things probably weren't changing enough. So the sense that we feel that things have gone downhill is probably a a good thing uh, and kind of utterly natural. But it's more to do with life cycle than it is to do with this generation being particularly good or bad on on things. I think it's a really interesting point about civility because I'm I because what on the one hand we will feel that traditions and ways of living that we held dear or we thought had useful purpose, young people are tearing up or ignoring. And then again, that's kind of, that's natural. Then on the other hand, you've also got quite a counter trend of uh, things that were acceptable in our day are no longer acceptable in terms of how uh, culture war issues have tended to evolve. So the sense of offense that people take to particular issues or use of particular terms or the way that language has been linked to people's sense of harm, that what people say can hurt you was probably much less developed in, in our day. So that we've got these countervailing pressures where on the one hand, we, we may think that standards have decreased in terms of civility and how people interact with each other. On the other hand, you've also got this increasing policing of speech, um, or that sense that police, uh, speech is 
increasingly important to help people react and feel. So it's a really interesting tension about what is civility in in that sense, about whether it's about um, how you address people, not assuming which pronouns to use versus the politeness potentially of losing that politeness to more directness of the kind of media, social media communication styles. So I think, I think, I think like everything else, civility and people's understanding of it constantly evolves and younger generations may have a different view of what that means to them. In fact, they're inevitably going to have a different view of what that means to them than what we did, what we grew up. Right. I personally see a lot of the issues or problems we have with civility are coming from social media and the press, mm. that they are constantly now going after sensationalism as mm. opposed to telling us what the facts are. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot in the book about that we tend to deal more with the now, which yeah. in a lot of ways is good, but we also are very short-sighted about the future. Like the statistics that I was reading about climate change were disturbing. So what is the media telling us? I mean, it's almost like everything is a TikTok video. You know, it's a soundbite. But what do we do about short-term thinking? Yeah, no, I think um, short-termism is real. And we have, we definitely have a short-term bias. And it's... uh, very much a human, it's a human capability to be able to think long term. We're a very unusual species. In fact, we may be the only one that can imagine the future and work towards it. It's a proper, in terms of long term future. So we can do amazing cathedral level thinking, but it doesn't come that naturally to us. We have to really focus and, and try to do it. So, and we keep getting drawn back to the short term. So it's not that the capability isn't there as humans. In fact, it's no, it's one of the things that distinguishes us. It's just it doesn't come naturally to us. And then, unfortunately, we have an environment in the economy, in politics, in media, and everything that really is very short-termist. You know, political cycles don't fit with the type of long-term challenges of climate change, economic cycles, demand from shareholder to have results immediately, the immediacy of media, as you say, uh, in, you know, it's no longer 24-hour news turnaround periods, it's in seconds. So these types of, those types of changes all bring it much closer to those short-term views, which is really terrible for the long-term issues that we have, which includes climate, but also inequality, so many other aspects of what is the future of work, are all these very long-term things that don't fit well with our systems, really. So, yeah, that that is one of the big challenges I want to flag in the book because we need more of that generational thinking that we are not just living out our lives and then done but we have a sense of legacy across generations. I worry that the media is manipulating that information so that they are subconsciously telling us that we don't need to worry about these things. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I'm sure in some senses, yes, in there, there is strategy within media that is connected to big business, etc. But in many ways, we get the media we crave because they give us what we want. And they say so they play to those human biases. Um, so in, in the other book I wrote on misperceptions, um, 
you've got to think of it as a system where um, the, the media play to our biases, but they only do that because we've got those biases in the first um, place already. Yeah. 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 So it's a very human system interaction. Uh, there's one thing I want to get to quickly, and that is the deaths of despair. Yeah. And one of the things that stuck out to me, especially with uh, here in the United States, was this statistic about white males, 45 to 54, who were without a degree, yeah. and they're having a higher incidence of suicide. And there's also, I'm sure you know here, as I was reading something called Diseases of Despair, which is related to that, which mm. includes a gamut of symptoms, mm. including things yeah. like reckless driving and all that. Yeah. Absolutely. But when I read that, I was thinking about the constant issue we are faced with here with people who don't want to get vaccinated or um, mm. people who were involved in the January 6th uprising at the Capitol here in the United States or Trump supporters just refusing to believe facts. Yeah. And if there is a correlation between what you're talking about there and those statistics and this type of person, and I'm not pointing a finger at them, I'm trying to understand. Yeah, I think the good work on this, uh, there's lots of good work on this in the US, and what it points to is there's no one cause for the, both the deaths of despair and the uprising, but there are some common themes where a lot of it is, it's got economic uh, outcomes related to it, but really at its core, it's about a feeling of a loss of a way of life and a loss of respect for that way of life, people leading that way of life among those types of groups, the white male, lower educated groups, where they used to be able to expect a decent living and, and a sense of respect. So a lot of the work on this talks about not just your consumption ability, as in how much money you're making and all those types of things, but your sense of contribution to production, um, that you're important to the economy and you're important to That you society. have value, yeah. You have value, yeah. So really about, is, is your way of life valued anymore, uh, your individual contribution? And I think that seems to be pointed at the root of a lot of this. And then when that happens, when you've got that sense of loss of respect, you get much more resentful about other people coming in that you feel are getting preferential treatment, whether that's immigrants or other groups. And so that adds to that sense of tension. So it's partly economic, but it's much broader about loss of way of life and loss of respect. And that they kind of tie together that deaths of despair with that sense of uprising against the system, and whether it's working for them. And where, that's where you get populist leaders. Um, and uh, it, that's where their support comes from. Those people who feel like they've not got much to lose. Right. And someone helps them blame somebody else for it, whether that's realistic or not. Yeah. Individualism you you talked about individualism starting pretty much with Thatcher and Reagan. Yeah. Is that a big problem for us as a society now, individualism? Yeah, it definitely is. But yes, no, I think, I think uh, yes, a long trend towards individualism, not starting with Thatcher and Reagan, but certainly accelerated with them. And I think that sense of uh, it's all down to the individual and there's no collective uh, responsibility has changed. Young, younger generations have a different view of what help they can expect to get and whether collective action works as well as individual action. And I think that's a risk. I think the, again, the big things that we face like climate change are going to be a lot about collective action to deal with them, not individual. 
action. We will need to work together as societies and have real change in the economy, for example. So yes, I think there's a risk in this long trend towards individualism that we think we're on our own, and that will stop us dealing with some of our biggest challenges. So as a civil society, we're in, in relation to everything that you've learned through doing the generation myth and your work over the many years, where do you think we are as a civil society? Are we in a good place? No, not really. <laughs> I think um, not in a great place. I think uh, the uh, other work in the, that, more in that sort of space, things like Bob Putnam's book, The Upswing, shows how, you know, across in America in particular, how across the 20th century into the 21st, that you had a kind of low points at the beginning of the 20th century in the Gilded Age and that sense of inequality. And then it got better in the second half of the 20th century where there was growth, but also social connection. And, and now we're back in a period that feels more like that lack of growth, growing inequality and loss of connection. So I think there's, there is threats to it. I think what my work shows, though, is we're also not, it's not as dire as it seems from what you see in the media and social media. The trouble with what we see now is there's a real incentive to accentuate the extremes, the most extreme reaction on one side or the other, because we know from all the experiments on this that that travels further and faster than other types of information. People click on that and share that type of stuff. So we've got this impression of a really fractious community out there of one side against the other. When the reality, when you do the more careful measurement of where people are, is much more nuanced and there's much less distance between people on lots of issues than, uh, than you'd expect from that rhetoric. So it's not in a great place, but it's not as bad as you may be led to believe by what we see. And I think we need to keep that in mind as a, as a kind of hopeful final message on this, is that it's um, we have been through similar situations like this before and worse, uh, and we have an accentuated view of how bad it is now. And we've certainly made things better in the past. So we still have the capability, the agency to change things for the better. So is the danger also that myth can become fact, for example, parents taking their children to school basically started here because there was danger lurking around every corner mm. if a child walked to school. I walked to school when I was a kid and um, nothing ever happened to me. But it seems now this accepted norm that these dangers are there all the time. So parents are, you know, driving their kids to school all the time. Is that based on a myth? How do we differentiate in our own lives between what is myth and what is fact? Yeah, I, that's right. I mean, I think the, there is a risk that the rhetoric becomes self-fulfilling. Um, in the uh, polarization work on, on all the theories about how do we become polarized or very different from each other, it's, um, there's a distinction between whether you're polarized on the issues, whether we have different views of the issues, or whether we're polarized just on our identity or effective polarization, it's called. So the worry is that we can create a sense of division. I'm on one team and you're on another, and we don't like each other, even if you don't really disagree on the issues. Um, and that's the worry here, is that that type of rhetoric, that type of stories that we tell ourselves, give the impression 
that we're really divided when actually when you look at it we're not that divided on the issues at all but but our identities tell us that we should be fighting against each other and that's that's the thing that we've got to guard against in all this absolutely in closing one other thing before you go your book the generation myth what does it tell us about where we are what we can do is there is there something in there that tells us what we can do as a a society yeah absolutely at a individual level i think it's it is mostly about taking comfort from the fact that there is no big division between young and old not the, not in the way that it's often portrayed and the main thing that i'm encouraging is that um that separation between generations that we've kind of drifted into by accident just through inattention living much more separately but doing our best to reduce that is maybe the key thing that we can do trying to get contact between the generations is something that we can do as individuals but something government and civil society could do too i think those types of spaces are really really important and that would be my one main message is make contact with across generations try and do that yourself try and do that more systematically across the system and and that benefits both sides there's very solid evidence that both old people older people get real value out of that in the same way that younger people get value out of that so it's a very efficient way to improve society by making those types of contact so the point being then that we have something we can work with that there's something we might not have all the answers yet on how we can make those connections but the intention to know that that's what we need to do is very helpful bobby thank you so much professor bobby duffy uh we really appreciate you spending the time with us today and uh have a wonderful life (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much Listening to Bobby Duffy makes me wonder, what can we do to bring more unity, understanding, and change to what seems like an increasingly fractious world? Most of us know people older and younger than ourselves. Sometimes it's friends, sometimes our regular checkout clerk at the store, people we see at the gym, or our parents, or our children, our grandchildren. In all these cases, we have the power to affect positive change over how other generations see us or how we see them. We all have a chance to be more inclusive, kinder, and more understanding. We can all gently start to knock down those barriers between different generations. In upcoming episodes, we'll be looking at some of the organizations and individuals who have made that their mission. You can learn more about Bobby Duffy and his books by visiting us online at OurGenPod.com. That's O-U-R-G-E-N-P-O-D.com. And please take a moment to like and follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends how they can listen in too. We also welcome and appreciate your financial support. It's definitely needed please go to our website and click on the Donate button to support our work at www.ourgenpod.com. And be sure to subscribe to our mailing list to stay in touch. There's also a place where you can share your comments by adding your voice to the conversation. 
just click on the microphone icon on our website and record your message. We really want to know what you think. In closing, I want to take a moment to thank Rob Wilson, our phenomenal director and editor, for his work on each and every episode, and to the talented Bill Aldridge for his Our Gem Pod theme music and other music. You are the best. I'm Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all content in this podcast is copyright unauthorized films. This podcast includes copyrighted material, which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law Section 107, which reads, the fair use of a copyrighted work for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website at rgenpod.com.